it's um, an interesting, interesting uh, confession. It made my made my mind again start racing because it, the song, the first song, is talking about um, basically life life going tough, life going hard, life taking unexpected turns, and then your confession is that very same thing from from Romans 8.28. And um, I shared this Wednesday briefly. In fact, a lot of today's message as well is going to come out of our discussion on Wednesday. Um, but I shared uh, Wednesday that I've, I've been taking piano lessons. Since I have the church piano, I've been taking piano lessons and uh, learning to play. And things are coming along. Um, but your confession, Andrew, set my mind to thinking about my lessons a little bit more. I have a song that that is interesting that I'm playing. I don't remember what it's called right now, but uh, it's the beginning and end of the song is full of melody and harmony, and it's just beautiful. And then the middle section for about a page and a half is almost all dissonance. And I remember the first couple times I played through it, I kept stopping, like that can't be right. That can't be correct. And so I'm reading the notes, and I'm looking at my fingers on the keyboard, and I'm looking back at the notes and looking at my fingers, and I'm looking at the sharps and flats, and no, that's right, but it can't be. And I'd play it, it would sound horrible, and then I'd go on to the next little section, and I'd have to stop again. That can't be right. In my way of thinking, no, harmony's good, and dissonance is bad. It's not pleasing. It's not pleasant. And later on, it finally dawned on me that the dissonance gets its clarity in the resolution, which is the harmony. But the harmony really isn't all that beautiful unless there's dissonance. And for, for according to your confession this morning, um, Romans 8.28, for believers, uniquely, the dissonance is for the purpose of seeing the beauty of God's grace and mercy, the harmony. Because our harmony is not with the events of our lives. The harmony is not with the events or the people in our lives. The harmony is a vertical harmony between us and God. And God uses the dissonance. And his purpose for the dissonance is to bring out good. And the good is almost inevitably a vertical good. Not necessarily a horizontal good. Now there may be horizontal good as well, right? But the focus is his glory. And so that, that dissonance makes the beauty of of Christ's love and the grace and mercy towards us. Amazing. So thank you, Andrew. That was really uh, challenging to me. It was a neat connection for me anyway. I, Lois, I'm sure for you, especially as you play the piano, you, you recognize the same thing. So that was just an encouraging thing. So with regard to our message this morning, we're continuing our study on prayer. Um, last Sunday, someone came to me and, and they asked me a question that was very intriguing. It was an excellent question, perfect question, in light of the study last Sunday in Philemon. Uh, for those, again, who were at the, um, at the Wednesday night prayer meeting, we, we talked about this a bit. We're going to expand on it this morning. So I hope you'll bear with me, those of you who were there Sunday night, Sunday night or Wednesday, I mean, because it's, it's going to be an expansion on that discussion that we had uh, um, the beginning of last Wednesday night. Um, the question was, at the end of Philemon, if you want to look at Philemon real briefly, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time in Philemon, in fact, very little. But I just want to point it out to you. The question came out of the end of Philemon.
my fingers would work, we'd be okay. The very last couple of verses Starting in verse 21, Paul writes this, Confident of your obedience, he writes to Philemon, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. That's the statement. So we not only have a prayer in the very beginning of Philemon that we looked at last week, we also have a prayer at the end of Philemon. The question that was offered to me afterwards was, after all of my discussion over the years of Aunt Melba's big toe, isn't in a very real way, verse 22, now I'm not necessarily accurate, completely accurately presenting the question, so please bear with me, but isn't the verse 22 prayer being mentioned similar to Aunt Melba's big toe prayer? What is Paul praying? Or not Paul, I'm sorry, what is Philemon praying seemingly as, as Paul describes it here? He's praying that, or he's saying, he's acknowledging that Philemon is praying that he will what? Leave prison and come see him. So number one, they'll be released from prison. Number two, they'll be able to come see him. So isn't that kind of like Aunt Melba's big toe where I just pray that she will be healed so she will function normally again. Is that not the same? That's a good question because it's a radically different. We have to acknowledge just in the, in the glimpse, the first glimpse, that the verse 22 prayer being referenced is very different from the early prayer that Paul talks about in the beginning of the book of Philemon. And we're going to understand it more clearly as we work our way through. Not Philemon. Hopefully you'll be able to take what we talk about today from Romans chapter 1 and apply it to Philemon. So if you want to turn anywhere, it would be Romans chapter 1 this morning. That's where we're going to spend our entire time. I just wanted to point out the question that was asked. because, And this becomes really important. Because prayer is supposed to be a big part of a Christian's life. If the Scriptures tell us to pray without ceasing, it sounds like it's supposed to be a big part of our lives, right? Sounds like it to me. And God gives us direction for how to pray, doesn't He? We have the Lord's Prayer where God gives us, Christ gives us an example of how to pray. We have all sorts of biblical prayers like the entire Psalter. The book of Psalms is, for the most part, 150 prayers. Uh, we have other prayers in the Scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. Then we also have uh, the prayers we've been looking at, which we're not actually looking at prayers. We're looking at descriptions of prayers of specific people. In this case, up to this point in time, Paul. God thinks a lot about prayer. And He presents the idea of prayer, the teaching on prayer, examples of prayer, descriptions of prayer throughout the Scriptures. So it's important, I think, that we understand it correctly because I don't think that we could argue, which I think oftentimes we by default function in, is that what we pray about and how we pray doesn't really matter. All that matters is that we pray, which I don't think any real Christian would say that, but functionally speaking, oftentimes that becomes the case, doesn't it? It doesn't matter what or how we pray, it just matters that we pray. If that was the case, we would just be told to pray though, right? We wouldn't have explanations, we wouldn't have teaching, we wouldn't have examples, we wouldn't have descriptions, we would just be told to pray. But quite to the contrary, we have all these other things as well. 
So we have a, a seeming dilemma in Philemon because we have two different prayers. They're really different prayers. One is praying, as you saw, with regard to what God had clearly revealed. Truth about Himself and truth about, about uh, His plan and His will. And his promises and all the rest. The other one is radically different from that. Philemon is praying that he'll be released from prison so that he could come and hang out with him. So, is there a way to reconcile these two types of prayers or can we just willy-nilly pray either one? That's the question. And I think there's a way to reconcile them and understand them as both valuable, but valuable for different reasons. And ultimately, we could argue two things at the same time. One is not, on one level, please hear me carefully as I say this, on the one level we could say one is not as valuable or as important as the other one. At the other way we can argue is they're both equal. And I think both are true. Now I know that sounds contradictory and that's okay. But I think that both, are, both those statements are true and we'll, we'll see as we understand it more clearly. In order to see both of those, we need to see them as clearly as possible. In order to do that, I think we'll go to Romans chapter 1. So let's start in verse 1 of Romans 1. We're going to read through uh, verse 17. Although we're not going to look at all that. We may reference a little bit of it. But starting in verse 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. In all those in Rome, or I'm sorry, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, now we go into his description of his prayer. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, but both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In this passage, starting in verse 8, what we have is we have two different, you could call it two different prayers, or you could call it most likely two different aspects of one prayer that he's praying. They praise, as we've seen in other passages, he's praying how often? Always. You see that statement um, 
in uh, verse 9. He's praying without ceasing. Verse 10, well, end of 9 and 10, I mention you always in my prayers. So you have this, again, this theme that you find in Paul, and you kind of get the sense that Paul's a real praying guy, isn't he? Doesn't that make sense? He's a praying guy. I just want to stop on that one for a second. This came up Wednesday night. A lot of what we're going to talk about came up Wednesday night, but we're going to try to consolidate it all together today. Could I just ask a quick question? You don't have to answer it out loud. Do you struggle with prayer? Do you struggle? Let me change that. Do you struggle with praying? If I was a betting man, I would say that all of us probably would say, yep. We struggle with praying. We struggle with prioritizing praying. We struggle with the actual activity of praying. Word's bad, but for lack of a better term, scheduling it. Actually being involved in praying. Actually crying out to God. We struggle with it, don't we? Why is that? You ever ask yourself that question? Why is that? If I may just pause on it for a second, because it's not the primary emphasis I want to make today, but if I could just pause on it for maybe a minute or two, actually. I wonder, and I think it's true. The other end started coming up. I think it's true. Move over a little bit. Yeah. I think it's, tr- I think it's really true. The reason why we struggle with praying so much is several fold. Number one, we don't understand prayer. We just don't. We don't understand the role of prayer. We don't understand the focus of prayer. We don't understand the, the purpose of prayer. We don't stand, understand the teaching on prayer. We don't understand the reason for prayer. We could add a number of other, other statements in there. We just don't understand. And the evidence, I think, is really kind of clear. If we just look at, at even the, the passages we've already looked at, I know the people I've dialogued with, what do, we, what do we find? What do we found? Here's what we found. What we pray about and what the Apostle Paul, just for sake of example, that we've just been looking at, and what the Apostle Paul prays about are radically different things. Aren't they? And they're not even the same universe. We're praying about radically different things. Not only are we praying about radically different things, we are praying for radically different ends. Not only that, but we're praying with radically different motives. Ends, goals, you can use either term there. Radically different motives. And I think, here's my theory, and it's just a theory, but I think that we don't pray much. And the reason why we don't pray much is because This may sound really radical to some people. I think in some way the Holy Spirit thwarts us on that. I really do. 
Why do I say that? Because I don't think God finds our prayers with the wrong goals, the wrong ends, the wrong purposes, the wrong motives. I don't think He finds them pleasing. And I think that if you find it at all troubling, that has to be the Holy Spirit working on you and working on me. Because it should be troubling. I mean, let's think about it for just a second. If to use Aunt Melba again, if we're if we're praying for Aunt Melba's big toe all the time, you if we're truly redeemed people, if we're truly if we've truly been rescued from darkness to light, if we've truly been transferred from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God, we have to find ourselves at some level of unease that we're not praying for the kingdom. Wouldn't that be expected? If we're truly of the kingdom, would it, would it not be unexpected that it would be uncomfortable? Now, just to use an example, here we are, we're, we're all American citizens here. If I started giving secrets, let me use an example, if I just started giving secrets to the Taliban, would it not be uncomfortable as a U.S. citizen? Would it not be uncomfortable to me? Would I not be at unease? Of course I would. The only exception is if I'd already functionally did what? Change sides. Even though I still have a paper that says I'm, I'm a U.S. citizen, if I've already changed sides in my heart, then I wouldn't be uncomfortable at all, would I? But if... I don't just have the paper that says I'm a U.S. citizen, but I am a U.S. citizen in my heart, and I share something with the opposite side, would I not be incredibly troubled by that? How much more? If I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God, how much more arrogant it would be and how much more troubling it should be to us if I'm actually asking my God and my King to support the enemy. Because is that not what I'd be doing? I mean, we do recognize all things are from Him, through Him, to Him, to Him be glory forever. Amen. We all recognize our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Your name, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Clearly, it's a kingdom issue. And so if I come to pray and I end up praying for my kingdom, for what I want, by default, there is no my kingdom. We all understand that, I hope. There is no my kingdom. There's only two kingdoms. There's only God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. So if I'm not living in, fighting in, being enthralled with the kingdom of God, then I am what? I'm enthralled with the kingdom of Satan. And I'm trying to function within the kingdom of Satan. That's what I'm doing. So when I, as a result, turn and I pray to God of His kingdom and ask Him to heal Aunt Melba's big toe for no other reason than I don't want her to have a sore toe, is that God's kingdom stuff? 
Is it? No. Or if I pray and I ask God for safety on my journey as I go to vacation, for example. And the whole reason for that is why? Because I want to have a good time on my vacation. Is that about God's kingdom? Or is it not? No, it's not. So whose kingdom is it for? It has to be for the kingdom of Satan. has to be. I know that's really uncomfortable. But it has to be. We can't cut it. You can't slice it any other way. If the Spirit is at work in us, we have to be uncomfortable with that. Has to be uncomfortable with that at some level. If we're not uncomfortable with that, that, that ought to really trouble us. That ought to really concern us. I'm convinced that there are true Christians who find themselves, and I hate to say it, we've been taught to do this. The church has forever taught us, not forever, but for many, many, a couple centuries anyway, has taught us that it's perfectly fine to pray for Aunt Melba's big toe. It's perfectly fine to pray for safety, for health, for security, for comfort, for ease. Even though that paradigm is radically in contrast to the scriptural teaching, isn't it? Is there any scriptural teaching about the value and importance of health, about the value and importance of safety, about the value and importance of security? Is there? Outside of Christ? No. Exactly. Yeah, they're going to kill you, though. So, you guys be quiet. I'm going. Isn't that Paul's perspective? Absolutely. Paul's perspective, being thrown in prison, best thing that could have happened, Philippians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians 4, I'm dying, but it's producing life. That's fantastic. Philippians chapter 4, I've learned the secret of contentment in all things. I can, do, I, can do the, I can handle these things through Christ who strengthens me. I can glorify Christ who strengthens me through these things. Radically different view. So I, I would argue that perhaps, I'm not, it's not a blanket statement, but perhaps, maybe, I'm qualifying dramatically, some of our lack of praying is because maybe the Spirit's at work saying, uh-uh, uh-uh, that will not satisfy. You're missing the whole point. Now, part of the problem is that our theology is all whack, right? It's all out of alignment with the truth. Because if our alignment is with the truth of who Christ is and what the kingdom of God is all about, you know what we're going to find? We're going to pray according to that. And therein is amazing beauty. That's why when we read these really, shouldn't be, when we read these really bizarre statements that we've seen in almost every passage, praying continually, praying without ceasing, it's weird. Why is it weird? Because we don't. Oh, but that's not really it. Why is it weird? Because we're not even praying what he prays. We're not after what he's after. We're not captivated by what he's captivated by. We're not moved by what he's moved by. What he's thrilled about doesn't thrill us. For Paul, just if I use an example, for Paul to have fellowship with another believer is like the highlight of his life. 
It's a highlight of his day, his week, his month. What he wants more than anything else is what? To fellowship with other believers. What do we want so often as Christians? Our team to win. Safety and arrival. A fun vacation. Good, good uh, investment return. Promotion at work. A good relationship. Kids that obey. And on and on and on. Isn't that the type of things we pray about? All the time. Why? Because that's what we're thrilled about. That's what we long for. That's what Paul, Paul's like, yes, I just want to hang out with believers. Christians are like, eh, well, it's convenient. Isn't that how it works with, with Christians, typically? Eh, well, it's convenient, we'll hang out. Or when we hear about, about someone, and this may, this may rub people the wrong way, but I see a dramatic contrast between, for Paul, when a believer repents, Paul is just, like, it's fireworks for Paul. And it's not a little one-time fireworks, is it? It goes on and on and on. For us, when somebody repents, oh, that's great. Let's go get lunch. Isn't that what happens? When I meet, when, when, if Paul meets someone who's newly saved, or if someone gets saved under Paul's ministry, Paul is just enthralled. He's captivated by that. Or if he meets someone who's a believer, a new believer, he's just absolutely thrilled. When we meet a believer, eh, well, that's nice. Isn't that how it usually works out? Like, I, I just get a sense with Paul. He meets a believer, and it's like the world stops. You get that sense? Paul meets a believer, and the world stops. He just wants to hang out with that guy. Doesn't he? For us, we, we'll, be at, we'll be at Walmart, wherever we'll meet another person who finds out is a believer. Oh, that's really great. Well, i got to go shopping. Like, really? Why is that? You ever wonder? For, or, or to use another illustration, when Paul gets together in the Scriptures, when you find him getting together with another believer or a group of believers, what are they doing constantly? Yes, they're talking about the Lord. They're talking about the gospel with each other. They're encouraging each other with the gospel. They're fellowship with each other. They're, they're, they're ministering to one another constantly. When the average Christian gets together with another Christian, what do we end up doing? Eating. Talking about sports. Talking about our latest vacation. Talking about our upcoming vacation. Talk about fun stuff we've done or are doing. Blah, 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 blah. Isn't that what happens? Our latest toys, our hope for toys, <laughs> if that happens, or maybe we're on the negative side of things, our, our our pains and our aches and our groans, and but in all of those, what's missing? Christ, right? What's missing is, if I go back to my talk on the piano, what's missing is the thing that harmonizes it all. <laughs> What's missing is the discussion, the fellowship in, as you were talking about in your confession, what? Christ. 
and how he's at work actively bringing out these things for good, right? Bringing them together as, a, as, a, as various ingredients into something that's going to be beautiful for Christ. And that's we're, we're not talking about that. It's like we want sugar, but we don't want flour. It's interesting, isn't it? So it shows up in our communication. It shows up in our praying. We're not thinking, worshiping, considering, meditating on, dwelling on what God has revealed about Himself, about His plan, His promises, His call. What is the Gospel? That's not where we are. We'll get together, we'll talk about everything but. And it just never shows up. So the result is, when we go to pray, it's just the clearest evidence that our heart is elsewhere. As we've said before, our heart is elsewhere. So with that in mind, we come to Romans chapter 1. And again, we have two aspects of a prayer and it may be two different prayers. I don't know. We'll say, it will say it's two aspects of one prayer. You'll notice in verse 8, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is proclaimed in all the, all the world. Again, we've already talked about that, that statement before in other passages. Just a reminder in case you weren't there or to be reminded. The evidence is quite clear for the church in Rome. Now, Paul at this point in time has not been to Rome. He will eventually get there. But Paul is stating, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Why? Because your faith is proclaimed in all the earth. Which means, if it's being proclaimed, why would it be proclaimed? Because it's what? Evident. Correct? It's evident. Could I just say this about the Roman church? I don't know anything about the Roman church other than what is revealed in the Scriptures. But evidently, here's the scoop. They had faith in Christ that was so obvious. Follow me so far? It was so obvious that everybody who met them more than anything else knew Christ. I'm not talking about relationally. But they knew Christ. They knew about the faith these people had in Christ. It was very evident being talked about in all the world, it says. Paul heard about it. He'd never been to Rome. Yeah, it, it, if I'm going to use a sports analogy, it's kind of intriguing, but I think it works. If you go to Colorado, I'm just pulling it out of my hat. If you go to Colorado and you walk around Denver and you meet somebody in a coffee shop in Denver and you're talking to them and they ask you, where are you from? And you say because they've never heard of Spring City, never heard of Birdsboro, they never, certainly never heard of Pennsburg. Yeah, exactly. So you say you're from... Philadelphia, or you shorten it up and you say, I'm from Philly. And nine times out of ten, one of the first questions I'll ask you is either, oh, are you an Eagles fan? It'll happen. You realize that? It will happen. Or maybe they'll say, are you a 
uh, 76ers fan, or maybe they'll say, are you a um, 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 Phillies fan? Thank you. Or maybe they'll say, are you a, what's the hockey team? A Flyers fan. But usually it's going to be, are you an Eagles fan? Especially if you're in a football town like Denver. Now, the person's never been to Philly. In fact, just for our illustration, he's never been east of Denver, except for the suburbs. But you know what? He's heard about Philly fans. What's that? Exactly. Who hasn't heard of Philly fans? Why? Could I, could I be blunt? What was that, Andrew? Well, that's part of it. But you know why? Be that's part of it, because they're passionate. <laughs> because of the, Can I just say it this way, if I may make it spiritual? Because of their faith in the Phillies, or in the, in the Eagles, or in the other teams. That's why. That's why. It's displaced faith, but that's a whole other issue. But my, you get my point? Why in Denver, over 2,000 miles away from here, would one of their first questions be, oh, are you a, or, or, are you a, are you a Eagles fan? Or even to the point of saying, you must be an Eagles fan. A declaration versus a question. Why would that be? Well, here's why. Because the faith of Philly residents has, is known throughout the world. The faith in what? Their team. Does that make sense? It's not a perfect illustration, but you get the idea. Which begs the question, why is it that so often even our neighbors don't even know that we supposedly have faith in Christ? How is that possible? Now some people can say, well, wait, there's TV and, and the radio broadcasts and Sports Illustrated, everybody knows that, you know, Philly fans. And we say that's somehow legitimate. And yet we have this example where there was no TV, no Sports Illustrated, or to use the better term, there was no Faith Illustrated. There was no Faith TV shows or Faith radio shows. And yet the Roman church's faith was known throughout the world. Pretty interesting, isn't it? I find that really intriguing and challenging and convicting. Some, if I may just throw one more curve before we get off this passage. I find it interesting that here's Paul thanking the Lord for the Roman church. Why? Because their faith is known throughout the whole world. And why is their faith known throughout the whole world? Ultimately, it's because the Holy Spirit really is at work in them. This is a God prayer. This is not a Roman church prayer. This is about God. God is at work in them. And what do we hear too often is this. Brace yourself. Today we've dumbed it all down to say, if we say anything at all about someone who's a believer, I thank the Lord for them because they, at some point in time, walked out, raised their hand and prayed a prayer. Do you recognize that that's in a totally different league than this one? Do you see that? It's a radically different league. I suspect if Paul 
was writing a letter to an average church today, he would not say, I thank the Lord because you raised your hand, you prayed a prayer, walked an aisle. And I heard that that took place. <laughs> In the distant recesses of your history, even though you don't come to church anymore. Or you occasionally do. That doesn't make any sense. These people... Their faith in Christ was such that when people talked about those in the Roman church, all they could say is, those people love this guy by the name of Jesus. And they're willing to die for him. They're willing to suffer persecution for him. Hide in the catacombs for him. Be thrown in prison for him. Be fed to lions for Him. It's a radical difference, isn't it? I, I hope you see that. So Paul is thanking the Lord first. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Verse 9, For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you in you mention I mention you always in my prayers. We'll just stop there again. We just we already talked about that. He's praying always for them, thanking God because God is at work evidently very clearly. But then he goes on, I mention you always in my prayers, and then he says, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at long I'm sorry at at last succeed in coming. To you, and then he goes on and says, "Because I wanted to before, I've always been thwarted." Right? Got that? So you have two different statements. One is a thankfulness, and the other one is a request. Correct? The thankfulness is that their faith is being known throughout the world. The request is is that that I I hope, if the Lord wills, I'll be coming to see you. Let me let me take a big step back to help you understand how to think about prayer. And it's not just prayer; it's about faith. I would use when we're talking about prayer, prayers of faith. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit to see how it works. Faith. It, this is just generic, but a discussion on faith. We've said it before. I just want to remind you faith must have an object. Faith must have an object. Always. Faith cannot have itself as an object, by the way, if I may say that. Because that doesn't make any sense. If I have faith in faith, that hangs on nothing. It doesn't even hang on a thread. I've got to have an object. So the, the, for starting point, faith better have a pretty solid object. If I go back to the eagles, for example, it's, pretty bad, it's a pretty bad connection, isn't it? How many times they won the Super Bowl? It's a pretty bad connection, isn't it? If they win every other year, it's a pretty bad connection. That faith in that is a half the time you're going to be disappointed if they win every other year. If they won 24 out of 25 times, you're still going to be disappointed once every quarter century. It's still really disappointing. It's still not a solid connection. Does that make sense? Especially when what is revealed in the Scriptures, and I'm just using that as an illustration, but especially when you understand what is revealed in the Scriptures is who God is. And one of the, the scriptures say a lot about God, doesn't, don't, doesn't it? And one of the things it says is He never will what? He never fails. 
it teaches from Genesis to Revelation, He always keeps His promises, doesn't He? He's always trustworthy. He's always reliable. He always follows through. He will never, ever disappoint. Faith has to have an object. Now, when we say faith has to have an object, we need to understand, when I say faith needs to have an object, that object needs to be accurate. What I mean by that is, we're not allowed to create an understanding of God just out of, out of the blue, out of, out of, out of air. Right? Can't do that. You can't just create an image of God for yourself and say, this is God, therefore, I'm going to put faith in that. That's what Aaron did with the golden calf. How'd that work out? Didn't work out at all. Twenty-some thousand people died. And we see many, many other examples of that, do we not? Faith has to have an object, but if that object is, has been revealed and he has revealed himself, the task is to make sure that we carefully understand the object. Does that make sense? Faith must have an object. God has revealed Himself. He has revealed Himself in the entirety of the Trinity. Now, He's not revealed Himself entirely, but He's revealed everything that He wants man to know in the Scriptures. So everything we know about God, we know via the Scriptures. Number two, faith has to have an object. I would argue for faith to really be faith, to accurate faith, it has to have two objects. Now, both are very tightly linked to each other. Object number one is God Himself. Faith must have a dramatic connection to that object, God Himself. That is revealed in the Scriptures. Faith must also have a second object to truly be faith. The second object has to be what he has said, not just about himself, but what he said about everything else. So it's a double object. But it's connected because it's all coming from him. So faith has the object, number one, God himself, what God has said about himself. Faith has to have a second object, what he has revealed about his will, his plan, His promises, His commandments. All that type of thing. Do we have both objects available to us? I see one person saying yes. We we do, don't we? In the Scriptures, we have revealed who, who the Godhead is. Do we not? In the Scriptures, we have revealed what He's about, what He's doing, what His plan is at some level, His will for us at some level, His um, goals, His directions, what He's already accomplished, what He's promised to accomplish, what He has commanded of us, what He's prohibited of us, all that's there, is it not? Do we have any of that elsewhere than the Scriptures? No. None of that comes from anywhere else than the Scriptures. Now that's really, really important as we wrestle with prayer. Because prayer is supposed to be prayers of faith. We all know, if we don't, you and I need to have a talk, 
we all know that it's really inappropriate for us to go to prayer and say, God, you know, I want you to give me a Maserati. I don't know why I'd pray that, but I just want you to give me a Maserati. And not only that, but I want you to give me enough money so that, or maybe I could be really funny and say, God, I want, I want you to give me a, a jet plane. Since a lot of the happy clapping preachers have their own jet planes. I want you to give me a plane. Not a propeller driven plane, I want a jet. And I want to have enough money to pay for the insurance and pay for unlimited travel and pilots and stewardesses or whatever they're called nowadays. Um, and everything else, repairs, everything, so that I can just enjoy that lifestyle along with the mansion and, and the fame and the followers and everything else. That's what I want. Now, we all know that that's wrong, isn't it? I mean, we know that inherently. That's like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Well, why doesn't it make any sense? Well, it's really easy if we think it through. Why doesn't it make any sense? It doesn't make any sense because that person has faith in supposedly in God, supposedly has an object, right? Seemingly, he has an object. If he's praying to God, it's the object, right? But is that, is his theology revealing that the God that's his object is the God of the Bible? Not even close. Because that's not who God is as revealed in the Scriptures. So therefore, does he really have the object being God. No. Who is his God? Or what is his God? His own lusts and his own desires and money and fame and everything else, right? And he created a caricature of God, but it's not really God. So therefore, he's not even praying to God, is he? Now, I take an outlandish, outlandish illustration to drive the point home here we find Paul, and if we look at the other passages, Paul is praying to God, and in his thankfulness, he is talking about a God who has revealed himself. That's his object. But he's talking about that God is accurate according to what the Scriptures have, have revealed. Have, has he not? He's revealed himself. God has revealed himself. Paul is praying to that God in accordance with the God who has been revealed. His prayers are consistent with that God's character and attributes, isn't it? In every way. His prayer, in other words, is being informed by the truthfulness of the God who is revealed. It's a prayer of faith because the first object is real. His other, but we still have the other object. So let me go outside of, of Romans for a second. In Philippians, if you, or I'm sorry, in Ephesians, you remember that Paul prayed, I pray that the eyes of your hearts may be opened. Remember that? Kind of popular in a song, and, and, and people talk about it regularly, misunderstand what it means, but oftentimes. But Paul prays that the eyes of the Ephesians' hearts will be opened. And he goes on and talks about that they'll be opened so they'll see Christ and all the rest of that. Is that a prayer of faith? Well, yes, I would argue it is. Here's how I know. Number one, is he praying? to a God accurately according to the attributes that God has revealed to, to him in the Scriptures. 
The answer is, well, yes. His object accurately is reflecting the truth revealed about God. Number two, is he praying a prayer when he says, "Open the eye, I pray that, you'll, that God will open the eyes of your heart, that you'll, know, that you'll see God in all that He's doing according to the Scriptures. Is that second object correct? Is he praying with regard to the opening of the eyes of their heart? Is he praying something that the Scriptures have promised to do? That God has promised in the Scriptures to do in a Christian's life? Yes. Has he promised that he'll illumine the spiritual eyes of believers to know the truth about God? Yes. So, is Paul in that prayer in Ephesians 1, does that second object come into play? What God has revealed? Well, yes. So he has the object of God, the Godhead. He has the object of what God has revealed. It is a perfect prayer of faith. Is it not? And that's just one of many, many illustrations. We could go to the Lord's Prayer. Pray this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He's talking about God. Is he talking about God accurately? Yes. Is he talking about what God has revealed as his will and his plan in the Scriptures? Well, yeah. Has he not called repeatedly for his name to be hallowed? Of course. When he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is that consistent with the revealed truth of the Scriptures? Of course it is. So we have both objects in play, right? When both objects are in play in the prayer, accuracy with regard to what God has revealed to Himself and focus on that, on God, and the object of faith secondarily being what God has revealed, not just about Himself, but also about His plan and His will. Now we have a prayer of complete faith. Because both objects are in place. You follow me so far? So when I pray, according to the Scriptures, when I pray, in other words, accurately focused on who God is, the object number one, and then I pray according to object of faith number two, what He's revealed, that is perfectly a prayer of faith. Example. If I pray, God, I know that You are sovereign and I am not. I know that. This is a simple prayer, but I know you're sovereign. I'm not. I know that you are God. I'm not. I know that you are just and righteous and merciful. And I'm not any of that. But I pray today when I go to work that you glorify yourself while I'm there. And that you glorify yourself more specifically because I'm a little kingdom of God moving around in that place of work. And through this little kingdom of God, this little movable kingdom of God, is the focus on the first object? Yeah. Is the focus on the second object? Absolutely. It's a prayer of faith. Why? 
because it's just, it is focused on who God actually is. It's a focus on what He said He's, he's about. So that prayer, I can pray with absolute confidence, can't, can't I? In every way, I can pray that prayer with absolute confidence. So that's what God said. In every way, both objects are in place. With Aunt Melba's big toe, on the other hand, what do I have? If I'm praying for Aunt Melba's big toe, I'm praying to God for Aunt Melba's big toe, I may or may not have the first object in, in view, right? I'm praying to God, but just like those happy, clappy preachers, that's why I use that illustration, just like those happy, clappy preachers, I may be thinking really badly about God, right? Let me give you an explanation why. If I'm praying for Aunt Melba's big toe, and it's merely because I just don't want Aunt Melba to, to suffer, what am I saying about God? What's that? Well, we're saying perhaps God doesn't send suffering. Possibly, yes. What else? He's not sovereign. Okay, what else? And that is will for us to suffer, perhaps? Yep. Not, what else? What? He's not provident. Okay, what else? Any other ideas? What's that? Yeah, maybe what's these are all maybes, but yeah, maybe what he's sending isn't what's best for her. Um, what we're saying, what we're saying about God is also. Let me throw it a little more serious. We're saying that that he doesn't care to be anybody else than my servant. He's okay with being my servant. Isn't that what I'm saying? In fact, not only he's okay with that, he is my servant. You know what I'm saying? And we can go on with that. I just want to give I just want to I just want to prime the pump. If we take any of those and all those together, are we not praying to a different God? Right? Now, the first object's not there. We might as well be praying to Aaron's calf, golden calf. The object's not there. It's not a prayer of faith. When I'm praying for Aunt Melba's big toe because I, and she's as an illustration, because I don't want her to suffer and be in pain, then what I have is, do I have the second object of faith in place? No, because God has never promised anywhere or even alluded to the idea that he wants to remove all pain. Has he? Ever. So neither object is there. What is that then? It's a prayer that's for Satan's glory, not God's. I know that's painful to say, but it is. Now, we already covered that, so I don't want to go any further. But so, what do we do then with the prayer at the end of, of Philippians that's referenced? What do we do with Paul's prayer here? It's very intriguing how Paul prays it. Words are important. Notice what Paul says again in, in Romans chapter 1. Verse 9, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, words are important, somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So His first object is there, right? God. The Godhead. The truth about God. The first object is there. He's even acknowledging, is he not, that if God is willing, what? He could what? 
If God is willing, God could what? Allow him to come. God could have him removed from prison allow him to come. Paul has already been released from prison at least once, miraculously and supernaturally, hasn't he? Paul and Silas? He's already been released miraculously once. So is it possible that God can release him from prison? Of course. But here's what we don't have. Here's what Paul does not have in the prayer. Paul does not have an objective, if I use the term, objective, objective of faith. What I mean by that is, Paul does not have a clear statement of Scripture. That's what God does. He has an illustration. It happened in the past. But he doesn't have any declaration by God that says, this is what I'm all about. Correct? Paul, in other words, has no confidence that this actually will happen. Does he? There's no evidence here he has confidence. He says, I'm hoping that somehow, same way as end of Philemon through your prayers, that I'll be able to come out of prison and come hang out with you guys. Correct? That's what he has here. What is Paul actually praying here? He's actually praying just like James describes in James chapter 4. What he's doing is he's saying this. In James 4 it says, in condemnation, James says, you say tomorrow we're going to go to this city or that city and we're going to do this business. And he's basically saying, shame on you. Which is another way of saying your, your minds are on earthly things, not heavenly. He says, instead what you should be saying is what? If the Lord wills. Well, why would I say if the Lord wills? Because He hasn't revealed that. Correct? For example, tomorrow I've got all sorts of plans. I don't know if any of them are going to come true. Charles, do you have plans to go to work tomorrow? You don't have any plan to go to work tomorrow. You don't help me at all. Jim, do you have any plans to work tomorrow? You do. Okay. Jim's got a plan to work tomorrow. Are you confident you'll go to work tomorrow? No. You're not. Don't, ha don't hurt me like this. No. You have no confidence. Why not? Why does Jim have no confidence he'll be at work tomorrow? Because God hasn't revealed it. He's got plans. It's a good thing. But he has no confidence. Why? Because our confidence lies solely where? In God the Sovereign One. God the authority, God the orchestrator, God the planner. Right? Jim can't have any confidence in himself. Well, he could. What good is that? You're not God. We make our plans, but what? God orders our steps. So the best Jim can do with regard to work tomorrow is acknowledge the truth of who God is and who He is. You hear that right there in our discussion so far? Who he is and who Jim is. And if the Lord wills, Jim's going to go to work tomorrow. But if the Lord doesn't will, guess what? Jim's not going to work. Who knows why? See, if, our, if, our, if the object of faith, number one, is on God, take away from prayer for a second. If the object of faith is on God, as revealed in the Scriptures, 
and Jim gets up tomorrow and can't go to work for whatever reason. And he needs money. Who doesn't? He needs money. Got to pay bills. And bill, bill collectors don't care if you go to work or not. So Jim gets up tomorrow morning, he can't go to work by God's sovereign plan. If our focus is on the first object of faith, it will reveal itself how? By how we respond to it. Won't it? Because all along we're remembering who God is and who I am. And I'm remembering He's God and I'm not with all those ramifications. And I made my plan, but He orders my steps. I pencil it in. He pens it in. He penned in something different today for Jim, if that was the case. So, we can evidence very clearly where our heart is by how we respond to that. Don't we? When I start throwing, throwing my ledger into the wall and through the wall because I'm so angry, it says something about my view of God. Does it not? And when I storm around angrily, yelling and screaming and hollering, does that also not say something about my view of God? Does it not also say something about my view of me? See, i got them both out of line, don't I? Because who's really God in that scenario? I am. I am. Same way with prayer. I can pray to God if I'm Jim. I could pray to God if it's your will. I'd like to work tomorrow. I'd like to make it to work tomorrow. I'd like to work hard. I'd like to accomplish a lot. Pay my bills, etc. I can pray that way if my focus is on the first object, right? But we still have the second focus issue, the second object issue. And this is where it gets real muddy too often for us. And this is the issue, and I know I'm over time, but let me just cover it real quick. Here's the, here's the problem. Paul prayed and, and, and talked about them, how much he, he's been praying continuously, without ceasing, that perhaps somehow God would allow him to be released from prison to go hang out with the Roman church. Right? But it is interesting what Paul says about that. First, in verses 1 through 7, what's the focus in 1 through 7? What's the focus? It's the truth about Jesus. Isn't it? It's really clear. 1 through 7 is all about the truth of Jesus. And secondarily, the, church, the, the truth of the, of the Father. And then it mentions the Spirit. So it's, it's a focus on the Trinity, isn't it? What God has said about the Trinity. Then he gives that prayer, but notice right after he says, verse 10, always my prayers ask this, somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Verse 11, for I long to see you that I may what? Make lots of money selling tents and pay my bills. Is that what it says? Now he's going to, if he goes to Rome, he's going to try to sell tents, won't he? I mean, we know he's a tent maker. What does it say? That I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's what? Faith, both yours and mine. Then he goes on. 
I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far I have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as the rest of the Gentiles. Verse 14, I am under obligation both to... to um, I'm sorry, verse 13. First of all, he, he, why, why does he want to come to them? To reap a what? Harvest among them as well as the Gentiles referring to the rest of the unsaved people. He wants to reap a harvest among the believers. He wants to reap a harvest among the Gentiles, the unbelievers. I am under obligation, both the Greeks and barbarians, both the wise and foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Why? Because he's not ashamed of the gospel, verse 16. Because that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. You cannot understand the righteousness of God apart from the Gospel. It's revealed from faith to faith. It is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Why is Paul praying to be released from prison to go hang out with the Romans? The Roman, the Roman Christians of the church. Why? To minister. To be encouraged and to encourage. To exhort and to exhort. To preach the gospel, to save people, to preach the gospel to lost people. Now, let me ask you this question. In Paul's prayer, when we look at it in its context, he's praying the second prayer that in initial glimpse looks like a lesser prayer. Not a prayer of faith. Why? Because although the first object's there, the second's not. A prayer of faith has to have both objects. doesn't have both objects, it's not a prayer of faith. But when you look at it further, both objects are in play, aren't they? Both objects are clearly there. The object, God, the Godhead is there. The second object of faith is also there, is it not? Yes, it is, because he prays that somehow God will release him from prison so he can go spend time with them to do what? To do what God has called him to do. To proclaim the thing that he's been gifted with. The Gospel. To be a reflector of the love that he is receiving. Has God called Paul to proclaim the Gospel? Has God called Paul to evangelize? Has God called Paul to encourage the saints? Has God called Paul to exhort the saints? Well, yeah. Well, In Matthew 28, it says, All authority, all power has been given to you and I. And then he says, what next? As you're going, make disciples. By doing what? Baptizing them and teaching them all I've commanded you. Right? Is that what he said? I'm just taking that one passage. So, if I just use going on vacation as an example. We pray so often, God, keep us safe. And the whole point of it is a horizontal so we can have a good time on vacation at the shore. Right? Wouldn't it not look radically different, God? Lord willing, we're going to the shore this week. Don't know if we're going to get there or not. Whether I live, it's for you. Whether I die, it's for you. So it's all got to be for you. Because you're my all in all. And I know who you are, and I know who I am. And I know you're God, and I'm not. I know you're good, and I'm not. I know you're holy, and I struggle with a sinful heart. You hear the contrast? 
I'm just being brief here. God, I would love if somehow we could get down to the shore safe and arrive at the shore safe, if it's your will. If it's not, we're okay with that. I'm perfectly fine with that. Maybe not emotionally, because I don't like to hurt. But if that's your plan, I'm okay with that. But I would love to me and my family get to the shore this week because we're going to have just this, this time all week long where we can mutually encourage one another in Christ. Mutually motivate one another in Christ. Mutually teach one another in Christ. Mutually be reminding one another of the Gospel. And God, we ask You to take us to the shore because we really would like to meet people on the beach and tell them about You. And we know there's going to be people in the hotel next to us or in the house that we're renting next to us. And they need Jesus. And we would love to tell those people about Jesus because we know we'll never meet them anywhere but here. We know this is it. Right here. At the shore. We have two neighbors, one on either side. We know we'll probably never ever see them again. But this week, perhaps you'll give us the privilege and honor of telling them about Jesus. Giving the Gospel. Being light in the midst of this darkness. Lord, I just pray that you would just give us opportunities. And, and you know, if it'd be a real bonus if it was sunny and you know, we'd be able to enjoy the waves too, right? That'd be a cool bonus if it's your will. Again, what did I just say? I just prayed James 4, didn't I? I just threw in the obvious, clear things God said, plus I threw in the James 4 thing. I said, we'd ask that you get us to shore safely. That's the James 4 thing if it's your will. So that we can be mutually encouraged by one another, or so that I can present the gospel to Greeks and barbarians. Right? That, which is exactly what God's called me to. So it is an object of prayer who God is, I mean, object of faith who God is, it's an object of faith what God has revealed. Now that's a prayer worthy of praying. Do you sense the difference? Do you sense it? Versus pray for Aunt Melbourne her big toe so she's not in agony, so she can walk and do what she wants to do and go shopping? This is such so much more rich. God, I think she's lost. So with regard to her, her big toe and the agony, what I want more than anything else is for her to hear the gospel. And if that's what it's going to take is her sore big toe to hear the gospel, Lord, I pray it's real sore. I pray it's really painful to, to prepare a heart to receive if that's, what, if that's your tool. I don't know. But if that's your tool, make it really sore for her to be receptive to your gospel. If it's not your tool, if it's your will to heal that, that's fine. But God, what I want more than anything else is that Aunt Melba hear about you. So give me the boldness as I go see Aunt Melba to check up on how she's doing her big toe that I'll see how she's doing her soul. Is that a much more rich prayer? And are you not then acknowledging who God really is? And are you not humbling yourself before the God who really is because you're realizing who you are? And that's a prayer worthy of praying, isn't it? Isn't that a prayer worthy of being captivated by? Because that God is worthy of being captivated by? Because no longer is He serving you, is He? Now you're serving Him. No longer is He glorifying you. Now you're glorifying Him. 
No longer are you the sovereign one. He is. He's not doing your bidding. You're doing His. And how about you? But that praying is rich. And i got to be honest with you. When I come away from that kind of praying, I don't feel guilty. I don't feel empty. I'm lifted up to God. Because you know what I've been doing for the last however long I've been praying that way? Ultimately, I've been worshiping. <laughs> Haven't I? I've been worshiping. And I'm not worshiping Santa Claus. I'm worshiping the sovereign God. And that's what prayer really is, according to Romans 1. Prayer must have two objects. And the reason why is because faith must have two objects. If we don't have both objects in play, we are not offering up prayers of faith. And I would submit ultimately are offering up pagan prayers. Both objects need to be there. And if nothing else, the only way the second object, at minimum, the second object can be there is if we're praying if the Lord wills. Which makes it a prayer of faith. Because I'm submitting myself to Him. But it must be that the object ultimately of faith is demonstrated by your will be done and for your glory. It can never just be, please do this because I want it done. That is a pagan prayer. It is a prayer that mocks God. It mocks what Christ did on the cross. It mocks the Holy Spirit's work. It mocks the entire Trinity. If it cannot be a prayer that is focused on, again, I'll sum it up and then I will close. If it cannot be a prayer focused on both objects clearly, it must not be prayed. If it is a prayer that can be focused clearly over here and is being focused clearly over here, but it does not have the authority of the Word of God over here, it must be prayed if the Lord wills. And, Lastly, it must be prayed for His glory. Like Aunt Melba's big toe. If I'm going to pray for Aunt Melba's big toe again, I must be praying that, that way so that God is glorified in that. So that fellowship takes place. So that God is honored. So that His kingdom advances. Otherwise, it's a pagan prayer. It's a heretical prayer. It mocks. God and what God has accomplished. I hope that makes sense. We need to close in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, help us. As redeemed people, it is very easy for us to forget you, who you really are, who you've revealed yourself to be. It's very easy for us to conjure up a different God just like Aaron did, a different view of you. It's very easy for us to get caught up in the God of our own making. So Lord, first I ask that You help us to know You. Because that is of utmost importance. As You prayed in the Lord's high priestly prayer, that we will know the Father and the Son who You sent. But more than anything else, open our eyes to see and seeing that You will draw us close to love You as You promised to do. And then as we go from here, as we 
pray to you, help us to remember the two objects of faith. And Lord, in knowing the first object of faith, who you are, change our hearts so that we are fine, content, as Paul said in Philippians 4, with whether we have a lot or nothing, whether we're healthy or sick, whether we're wealthy or poor, whether we're in prison or free, that we have the privilege of glorifying you in all those things. So help us, change us, transform our thinking, bring us to worship. In your name I pray, amen.